Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, the C.J. McCollum Show, where every week New Orleans Pelican star C.J. McCollum discusses names and storylines in and around the NBA with inside perspective you can only get from someone in the locker room and on the floor. That's the C.J. McCollum Show. Listen where you are listening to this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. This is the time of week where we have a guest join us, and I'm thrilled to have our guest with us now, author of roughly 375 books, <laughs> and most recently, uh, the director of Say Hey Willie Mays. It's a new documentary that HBO has on Willie Mays. His name is Nelson George. Nelson, what's going on? Hey, man. Pleasure to be here. Now, man, I tell people, and this is really the truth, and I'm going to have fun with this because I think I'm going to work in some stuff from your work that you might not have seen coming in a sports interview, but I read your book, Hip Hop America, in the summer of 2000, and that was one of the things that inspired me to be like, hey, I think writing about music is something that I might want to do, and then there that gets go. us to here, and so it's interesting now to see you kind of tap dance a little bit into what becomes my world, um, <laughs> which is sports, with the Willie Mays doc. And I guess the first question is, what made you want to take on this project? Well, uh, I knew I knew the people from um, on both sides. LeBron's camp, uh, Spring Hill. I tried to sell a couple of projects with them. So I got to know their team, Jamal Henderson. On the other side, uh, the company name company, Colin Hanks and St. Stewart, I'd done a show called um, Tales from the Tour Bus, which was this oh, yes. <laughs> one of my favorites documentary slash animated series so they came together and they said to me we're, we're talking with willie about trying to do this doc are you interested uh duh um i grew up in new york and i was you know i saw willie on tv i saw the giants were a very big influence on in, in brooklyn because they were the first team to have so many latin ball players so on the, on the schoolyards of brooklyn everyone tried to pitch like while my rochelle was a late kick a bunch of brothers were trying to stretch like Stretch McCovey. And obviously everyone would, took a shot at the basket catch. So he was part of the sports world that we, even if we didn't see Willie play a lot. And then when he came to the Mets in 72, I was about 13, I think. And the, the way the New York media embraced him was I had never seen any, that kind of love for any black athlete at that time, even Dick Young who was a notorious hard-ass columnist at the Daily News, loved Willie Mays. So um, he's been a part of the texture of my sports life since I was a kid. All right. So one, I want to tell people on Tales from the Tour Bus, even if you don't get to check it all out, just go check out the one about Bootsy Collins, James <laughs> Brown, and Acid. Like, like that's the that that that's the one that everybody needs to get a hold of if you have not. Shout out to you and uh Texas own Mike Judge on that series. Now two words. Yellow sunshine. Yes. <laughs> now, the Brooklyn part, I was going to ask you about because you were born about, I guess, four or five years after the Giants and the Dodgers left New York. But I was wondering how the Giants part tied in, like Brooklyn, obviously, with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah. It was their city. So it's interesting for me to hear when you talk about the connection with the Latin players, because that yeah. is a big thing with the Giants. That the Giants went brown and black 
in a way that most of baseball had not. The Dodgers obviously had in their way, but the Giants added the Latin component to that. And so I hadn't thought about them after leaving New York, still having a tie to New York as a result of that. Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, my father was a Harlem dude. So he's from Virginia. Uh, that whole this diaspora came up in 56. I was born in 57. And uh, he... The polo grounds were still, you know, still stood when he got here. Uh, and a lot of those guys, that Harlem world that we kind of talk about Willie being part of was still there, which is the Red Rooster, uh, Small Paradise, Wilt Small Paradise. Uh, there were still echoes of Sugar Ray spot on 7th Avenue. So uh, Willie and, and Willie kept coming back. It wasn't like when he initially left. His wife is from Harlem. So he was still around when my father came here in that generation. So the Giants were still a presence and Willie was still someone that people talked about. Uh, and uh, so he, so the Giants, it's interesting because the mythology of Jackie and the, the Dodgers is so powerful that people forget the Giants were a big team here. At one point, you know, they played in a huge ballpark. They played basically, technically it's not Harlem, but maybe a block or two away. So they were they definitely still had had a resonance when I was coming up and when my father was coming up. So there was a lot of conversation about the Giants. Um, and it was still guys who, you know, wore the Giants hats and stuff like that. Though once the Mets came, that you know, that obviously disappeared. Yeah. Now I found it interesting that you say that LeBron and Spring Hill approached you to do this because one thing that I have wondered, like even before this doc came out, I've been thinking about what is the significance of Willie Mays in the current zeitgeist? Because so much of media had come out of New York. And so the superstars of New York and especially the baseball superstars of New York were outside. So even me, I am 42 in my age range. You get like Willie Mays as a guest star on my two dads and you don't have to explain who he is because Willie Mays, after having won a World Series in New York and being a product of New York, was such a big star, yeah. even going to San Francisco. And so I, hearing you say that Spring Hill came to you and not vice versa was interesting because I honestly was a little bit surprised that guys that are younger than me would still understand and appreciate what the resonance of is Willie Mays as not just sports superstar, but also American icon, because I don't know if it's possible now for younger people to appreciate what a big deal a baseball player was at that yeah, point. Yeah, Willie, is it, yeah, they... It, the aura, like everyone seemed to catch. That's like part of the, the highlight reel of America. Willie's, Willie's kind of aura is still there, uh, even in this time where baseball is not the primary sport. Um, and, you know, to contextualize Willie, you know, before Ali, right, Willie is the biggest black athlete and arguably the biggest athlete in America. He's bigger than Russell. He's bigger than Chamberlain, who played basketball, which at that point are still kind of minority sports. He's bigger than Jim Brown. Um, probably, you know, maybe Sugar Ray was probably maybe equivalent in boxing. So Willie's, and you know, the point you make is that Willie, not only played in New York, he played on both coasts. So he has a following on the West Coast. He plays the Dodgers like, you know, 10 times a year. He's in LA a lot. Uh, he was on the Donna Reed show, which was a show that no one remembers now, but was a big TV show in the mid-60s. He's on Bewitched. He's a regular on the Ed Sullivan show when we only had three networks. 
they, we don't have a black sitcom with Diane Carroll until maybe the late 60s. I think, I think what year Julia came on. Willie's on these shows in 1965, 66, the middle of the civil rights movement. The way to look at Willie, and I think why he resonates, is that he's a, par he's a peer of Sidney Poitier. He's a peer of Sammy Davis Jr., who during the early 60s when Dr. King and the marching is happening, they are in their own way normalizing Black excellence. These are guys, Sammy gets in, he's with Frank Sinatra. He's in people's homes. He's doing on telethons. Obviously, Sidney Poitier is a you know, huge movie star. Willie's on national TV consistently, either with you know, Game of the Week or whatever. So he was a, a prevalent and accepted Black man at a time when that was still a new idea. Uh, you know, and of course, like those two guys, like Sidney and Sammy, oh, Willie, when the Black Power Movement came in, Willie took it on the chin as well. Because as Harry Edwards says so well in the doc, you know, we, we were rejecting our fathers to go to that next place. But you had to have that generation like Willie, Ernie Banks, um, Hank Aaron, Bob Gibson, guys who came out of the Negro Leagues, still playing in the 60s who had had a taken a certain attitude, a Jackie Robinson attitude of shut up and play ball, that the next generation rejected, but you couldn't reject, if you, you had to have them to have something to reject. They had, someone had to be the person who went through those doors. Yeah, like I do want in sometimes, like I remember as a comedian uh, named Teddy Carpenter who had a joke sure. people talk about slavery, where he would be like, man, if I was a slave, da, 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 if you was a slave, you'd be picking cotton. Right. Like Willie Mays is not getting off the bus in Birmingham from Birmingham and showing up in 1951 and being like, well, let me tell you what this is about to be. No, nah, it was not. It was not going to be that. Like you think about with Jackie Robinson and I think um, HBO, HBO doc on Jackie Robinson pointed this out. And it's one of the more stunning things that as much as we give credit to the Dodgers and Branch Rickey for their progressiveness, uh, when they did their retirement celebration for Pee Ree Reese, they rolled out the stars and bars for him because he was from Kentucky, which I would note not a Confederate state, right. but this was still the state of baseball, even for Jackie Robinson, even into the late 19, mid to late 1950s, right? Oh, We're yeah. not just talking about the 1940s. Like, I think that the next generation, you're right. They had to push back against their fathers because they had to be there, but there's no way that those guys could have kicked it like that in the 1950s oh. and even gotten to where we were in the 1960s. I think one thing I didn't realize when we, is that we all talk about Jackie in the major leagues. But for Willie, he was the first black player in his league, minor league team. And this, uh, and that's true. Like uh, my man, Bill Greeson, who's in the dock, who was in the Black Barons with Willie, he uh, he ended up in the Cardinals system. He was one of the first black players in the Cardinals system. Piper Davis, who was Willie's manager at the Birmingham, was one of the first black players in the Red Sox system. So while Jackie was here, there was all these other people going through catching hell all over America in small towns from like 50, 47, really into the 50s. So um, that that whole idea about um, everyone just going to spout off and and raise the black fist, that wasn't happening then. I mean, it, it was interesting, too. Another little detail is that those teams tried to bring in at least two black players at a time or four. So they could stay in the same room. Yes. <laughs> they, they had no odd numbers. Because you know, so that was a, they, they all went through this kind of um, system of um, 
you know, we have to have this many and can only have this many at a time. I say it's interesting, one interesting story. The shortstop on the, on the Black Barons team named Artie Wilson, he then got signed to the Giants. He was one of the Black players on the Giants when Willie was being considered to be brought up. And basically, Artie, who played with Willie and was, you know, older, said, I, you know, I want to go back. I, I want to get out. I wanna, I'd rather go play in Oakland than be in New York in the Giants. Because he felt like if I went to Oakland, that's a black, it's a blacker town. I can have more freedom. He basically, you know, offered to give up his spot in the majors. Also because he just felt the pressure of being in New York. And you know, Willie, when he first got there, is is well documented. He didn't start well. To go from 19 years old in Birmingham, Alabama, you spend one year in, in Trenton, you spend a year in Minneapolis, more or less, and then you're in New York City. That's a lot. And you know, Willie was Willie was not super. He wasn't well educated. He went he went to a, one of those A and T schools, which meant they, he was being trained to be a, a working a, a cleaners. You know, I mean that's that that's the reality of education in Alabama for black people in the forties. Jackie, when he came in, Jackie was about twenty eight. He'd been in the army. He's a UCLA graduate. So it's hard to make that comparison because Jackie was a super worldly, sophisticated man compared to, 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 you know, to Willie. Uh, and that was one thing I think that when we talked to Willie, he was very aware of the sort of educational di disparity between him and Jackie. So he was very respectful of him. And, you know, as we sort of document in the film, he, Jackie clap, clapped at him a few times in the 60s for not being active enough. Willie would never have, never spoke back until maybe 68. And that was only because um, Jackie made a comment, or I think it's an article, I, I forget now, where he I, not only attacked Willie for not being active enough, but also uh, Jim Ray Hart and one other young black player. And Willie, as his want, his thing was to defend these guys as much as defend himself. Um, and all the time that we researched and we read every book that we could find, and all the, Willie almost never spoke explicitly you know, about race um almost in any context or he tried to, he, or he did it was always in a sense of you know brotherhood and community he, he never really he never you know, bought into being an activist in the way that that ali made made popular yeah, and, you know and the activist as athlete thing is always interesting to me because the truth is I don't know if Willie Mays would have anything to say that I actually wanted to hear, right? Like the idea that we want people to talk. Now, we want them to say what we want to say, no matter what. Very few of us are so dedicated to the nobility of discourse that we're just like, no, nah, man, just get something out here so we can have some ideas. Like nobody felt OJ Simpson that, right? Yes. But I think that Willie, certainly, and I think it's an important distinction to make between him and Jesse Owens would be an example. Like OJ, of course, is like the far extension of it. Right. But where Jesse Owens got in trouble, I don't recall Willie Mays telling everybody to sit down and calm down like yeah, Jesse yeah. Owens did in 68 when he kind of lost everybody. And so yeah. I always wonder what it's like for guys like that who make the call like, no, this is probably not the way that I should go about this. Right. Yeah. Like this is probably not my bag, but you're Willie Mays. If it was your bag, it would be such a big deal. Yeah. And therefore, it almost feels like a loss. Yeah, I, I think that he I, so he gets a lot of, you know, we interviewed his son, Michael and Barry Bonds, obviously, about it. Um, the, the person who really had the best perspective was Harry Edwards. Harry was, as people may know, uh, Harry helped is a great theoretician of black activism. 
at San Jose State. He was an integral part of the 68 Olympic boycott. Um, still, I think still advises Kaepernick uh, on, on some of his moves. And Harry really broke it down for us that, you know, that generation of Willie was the access generation. They were the people who had to open up the doors, had to take the verbal and, and, and other blows. They opened the door for that next group, which is, you know, the Ali, you know, Ali, Russell, Jim Brown, Alcindor, then Alcindor, now Kareem, and that famous press conference photo of, you know, these guys, you know, there for, you know, the Olympic boycott. Um, but then, the, you know, the pendulum swings back again. If you look at the Jordan Magic generation, Jordan has more in common with Willie than he does with Ali. Black excellence, I don't really speak on politics. The difference, of course, is that Jordan is able to, to monetize his crossover appeal in a way that wasn't possible for Willie in the 60s. But, the, you know, Jordan followed that same playbook to, to a great degree. That, and that's a playbook that actually Jackie Robinson laid out in the 40s of putting it on the field, making black excellence and making people come to you. You know, just the, the difference, of course, again, is, is the NBA was so much smarter about how marketing talent than the way that Major League Baseball probably still hasn't been. So it's a pendulum. You know, it's a pendulum. So we don't, we shouldn't, as I think uh, one of our interview subjects, Todd Boy says, you got to judge Willie as Willie Mays. If you're making an argument that he comparing him to guys from different eras, you don't understand the era he came up in. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. And spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I think the richness of this story, there were so many angles that I could imagine for you, like having to leave on the floor probably hurt. Like, for example... My dad, who is 85 years old now, so he's of this generation, um, he views Willie Mays very much in the context of Mickey Mantle and not in a way that I would say is complimentary of Mickey Mantle. Not that he did not think that Mickey Mantle was a good baseball player, but Mickey, Mickey Mantle was 
you, you, yes. <laughs> they they right they right next to each other. There's yeah. just one little difference. There's just one, right? And they stand as comparative figures. Like that's a big part of it. And I also thought that there was an interesting subtext in something that comes up in your work at other points, which is Willie Mays is kind of representative of the Great Migration. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But I want to get to the... So Mickey Mantle thread is one of the threads that did make the final film. Uh, they both came up in 51. They played in New York, played against each other in the World Series. Um, one of the things about their relationship, number one, they were good friends. Number two, which... Uh, got lost in, in trying to cut the film down was they used to call each other when they were negotiating their contracts. Really? Yeah. And talk about what they got offered because they both were vying for the most, who's the, you know, when Willie signed, I, I'm going to forget the, when Willie signed his contract in the early sixties, I think at one point he got a hundred thousand dollars, which was then the highest paid baseball player. And I think at one point it went up to one, one twenty, one ten. And these numbers seem very small now, but they were huge back in, in the early 60s. Unprecedented numbers, really. So they, they were compatriots in that. Uh, and ultimately, you know, uh, they both ended up both getting suspended from baseball for a time uh, for working for casinos uh, in their post-playing post, uh, careers. That was a whole thread that just ended up, you know, it, it, it kind of got ended up getting put to the side when we got Barry to do an interview. Quite honestly, yeah. because that to talk about something that happened, then we can get Barry Bonds to talk about Willie Mays. That just took up all that real estate in the dock. Yeah. Um, but I, I, here's the thing you got to know about Willie versus Mickey. Mickey Mantle hung out at Tut Shores. He liked to drink. He hung out with Billy Martin and Whitey Ford. It's well documented. Willie Mays does not drink. Willie Mays does not smoke. In 1951, Willie Mays entered the major leagues with a 32-inch waist. In 1973, when he retired from baseball, he left baseball with a 32-inch waist. The brother took care of his instrument. Yeah, that is, I love, like, when looking at all of that and looking at those times, and it really is incredible to stop and think that even if we're just talking about for seven years, those two guys play in the same position in the same city at the same time and basically living parallel existences when you think about it part of what drove mantle to drink was the fear of leaving yeah. this small town in oklahoma and yeah. being in new york city and it's interesting that willie went kind of in the opposite yes. direction on that well, he had harlem embraced willie i mean i've heard a little bit about the the, the original red rooster and as i started researching it he was a regular in there they had a table for him in the back they also looked out for him they didn't let certain people get next to him. Um, uh, he, it's funny, funny because w Mickey was living on the Grand Concourse, walking distance from Yankee Stadium. Willie was living literally, I mean, we went to the building. It's two blocks from the Polo Grounds. So I think in, in many ways, Willie being in Harlem and being in a community that valued the black, this young black ball player and knew the significance of him being there, I think that, that helped Willie a lot. And I don't think Mickey had the same kind of uh, support system. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting overlap here to me, like when I think about with migration in particular, right? Because yeah. one thing, when people talk about Black participation in baseball, one thing I typically point to is we're ignoring that we have become a more urbanized population. Yeah. 
and yeah. baseball fields are not necessarily the easiest to find. Though New York City is a little interesting. You get up to 171st Street, there are baseball fields, and our hermanos are out there playing yes. a whole lot of baseball, right? Yes. Like, yes. that that part kind of gets lost. But I was one of the scenes in the dock where Willie is riding through Harlem, and you see all these kids, and he's playing stickball with them. And I thought about what a comfort it must have been for some of those people making that migration where baseball was still there when they got yes. there, right? Like, baseball was a thing where they were – and then they get to what is now the mecca of baseball. And now you have the best player possibly in the major leagues. And it's Willie Mays and he lives right up the street. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so important. I mean, Willie, I didn't realize that it, kids in the South play stickball too, coming from New York. He talks about, they called it a uh, room ball. Yeah. Uh, baseball for black folks, the Negro Leagues were a vital part of the community. As um, Faye Davis, who was Piper Davis's daughter, says in the film, Every Sunday, there'd be a doubleheader. People got dressed up. It was a big deal. So when people made the move to New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, um, they brought that love with them. And, you know, uh, the Hank Aarons in Milwaukee, you know, Ernie Banks in Chicago, they were they they gave comfort to Black folks who'd grown up in a Southern rural environment. I mean, the baseball field... I know from my experience growing up in New York, going to Yankee Stadium the first time when I was a kid and looking at all that green grass, <laughs> I, I've never forgotten that that feeling of being in a ballpark and, and this immaculately taken care of environment. And I, I can only imagine how it felt for, for um, my father's generation to be able to go someplace that still feels like that's familiar in, a, in this crazy environment that's so different. My, my family's from Newport News, Virginia about as far away from the Bronx as you can get. So yeah. baseball was a connective thing for so many people. And when I think about like that time in New York, like I think it's something that can be hard to understand. Like I've lived here for five years and I got a little bit better grasp of it, right? So I live in Harlem. People to a degree can either A, be very surprised to see me walking up and down the street or this is a thing, right? People yeah. like me live in the neighborhood and you yeah. might see us you know, you might just see us walking around there. In the New York of that time, where if you're Willie Mays, you're not living in whatever the equivalent of Tribeca was then, right? You're yes. not living in whatever the equivalent of Soho was then. You're living where Black people live. Yep. And you are a dude in the neighborhood. Like, you might just be Willie Mays, but you're still, like, a dude in the neighborhood. Like, I think about all the jazz musicians living out in Queens, for example. They're the dudes in the neighborhood who then influence the hip-hoppers because these are the cats, like, these are the people that you just grew up around. Absolutely. Like, how wild it had to be in the 1950s if you just got off the bus and you're like, hey, wait, what do you mean Willie Mays lives right over there? Well, I'll tell you, so, like, that 7th Avenue thing, that, that was one of my favorite sequences in the movie. The we have a section we built around a Duke Ellington, uh, Ella Fitzgerald song about Harlem, that strip on 7th Avenue next to Strivers Road, Wilt hung out there all the time. Wilt and Willie knew each other. Sugar Ray knew each other. They played, they golfed together. Like, but they, they would meet on 7th Avenue at 130 whatever street, by the Y. That, that connectivity, as you said, to the community um, is why, it's so funny because we think about the game now, we think about how disconnect or different, even though they're visual, digitally connected that LeBron and Darren Wade are they're visible, but they're not, they're not touchable. Willie was touchable. Uh, the Red Rooster, Jackie Robinson hung out at the Red Rooster because it was a spot that you felt comfortable and you were taken care of. 
you can still go. Those guys could kind of go downtown, right? But not they're not going to be loved up there. I mean, Willie met his uh, his first, and I think he met his second wife both in Harlem. So you know that that sense of like you're hanging out, there's women around, there's uh, music, and from where Willie lived on St. Nicholas Place to the Red Rooster, it's a five minute drive. And if he decided to walk after a game, it's probably a 20 minute walk. And guys would just get out the ballpark, take a shower and walk over uh, and hang out. So that to me was kind of amazing that that, that, that Harlem and, and probably the Har- or whatever Harlem it was in the South side of Chicago, that these guys were part of that. And as you say, these clubs were full of jazz musicians. There's so many stories of jazz musicians and new ball players and vice versa. Um, Sammy, Sammy and Willie were really good friends. Whenever, whenever Sammy played the Bay Area, he went and had food at Willie's house. Uh, one thing to say about Willie, just in, in terms of the distinct community. So in New York, he was younger and he hung out a lot more. He got to SF, especially after the his wife and him divorced in '62. He built, he got a beautiful place as kind of his bachelor pad, and he became more of a home buddy. You know, when I talked to Cepeda and I talked to uh, Marshall and Tito Fuentes, who played with him, he didn't go out very much. Uh, if they were on the road, he was the first he was the first guy in the shower. He wouldn't even wait for the team bus. He would get a taxi, go back to the hotel, set up a card table in his room, have some food brought in, have some uh, non-alcoholic beverages brought in. And that was his world. He, I wouldn't say he lived a monk-like existence. That we, but his his sense of of taking care of his body and taking himself was very apparent in all the conversations. Uh, he would invite people. Bob Gibson came over to his house when they were, you know, after Bob had thrown at him twice at the game, he'd invite <laughs> Bob over to the house. Uh, Joe Morgan was a regular visitor. Um, any of the black players who came to San Francisco. Willie might not go with them out to the Fairmont Hotel, but they came to his place and they hung out, played pool. So he very much was a um, a connector and a mentor. And I think that one of the things that I really wanted to get at in the doc is this idea of mentorship. Um, when I first interviewed Willie, he kept using the phrase, take care of. He said, uh, you know, Piper Davis took care of me. When I got to New York, Leo DeRocha took care of me. But by the time we get to San Francisco, I took care of I took care of uh, Orlando. I took care of Juan. I took care of Bobby Bonds, and eventually that same thread connects into Barry. So there was a strong sense of um, baseball as a community, and 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 passing on mentorship, or, or even giving you know items away. He was famous for giving away golf clubs, giving away clothes to players, you know, because guys weren't making that much money back then. Um, there's a great story that Dusty Baker tells, you know, about him first meeting Willie, liking Willie's glove. Willie gives him his glove. That was very, very typical. Tons of stories of, of that. So um, I think that same sense of coming from a place, Birmingham, Alabama, where there wasn't a lot of resources and people shared a lot. I think that, I think he felt the same thing in Harlem where he was taken care of. And that was a big part. That's still a big part of his character. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Barry Bonds has a significant role in this documentary. First of all, Barry Bonds damn well is set for this documentary because he sat for Johnny Gill's unsung on TV one. So <laughs> like if, 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 if he just turns up just out of nowhere, you just sitting there and it's Barry Bonds friend rub you the right way. Like it's just, it, it, so I, I was, dude, you won't believe this. I ran into Johnny Gill um, this summer at some like R and B event. Mm-hmm. I asked him, what are you working on? I said, I said, you know, the Willie Mays. He said, oh, you talked to Barry yet? I'm like, <laughs> what? It is still one of the great shocks in my life. Barry Bonds and Johnny Gill are apparently the homies. Who yeah. Um, but- that Johnny Gill knew something. That Johnny Gill knew baseball. Yes. <laughs> yes. But you, it's an interesting thread, obviously, because Willie Barry Bonds, not quite the Willie Mays of his generation, because it's just the difference between playing left field and center field. Yeah, but yeah. if you believe Willie Mays to be the best ball player of his generation, there is no question that Barry Bonds is the best ball player of his generation, probably the best ball player since World War II. And they had this connection through the mentorship with Bobby Bonds that gets us to Barry Bonds. Now, what I found to be interesting about the way Willie deals with him, and I guess it's a function of proximity and the relationships, his attitude about Barry Bonds, given the performance-enhancing drug talk, is much different than, say, yeah. Hank Aaron. Yeah. And I noticed in the documentary, you had your positioning with Mays and Bonds, but no discussion of the other stuff. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we met Barry at Willie's 90th birthday. You even see the footage in there where he's with Willie uh, when Willie's cutting his cake. We spoke to him briefly about it. He's interested in doing it. But it took, I think it took a year, over a year, to finally get him in the chair. And the bottom line is he he's suspicious of media. Um, he, I don't know specifically, but I feel like he agreed to do some interview at some point and he got blindsided by, you know, questions about uh, steroids. And so he's very gunshot. Uh, we had to really convince him. And I, I got to say the, the Giants... Uh, team, Larry Bear and their team, they really wanted him in this because they knew that that's part of the legacy of the franchise. You got to have Barry talk about Willie. So um, it took a while to get him down. And when we got there, it was nothing like anybody expected. The brother was relaxed. He was vulnerable. He was humble. And, you know, and as, as much as he can be, he's a great player. But he, his, his emotion and his feelings of love for Willie were so powerful. Um, so it, it was a, it was an amazing, you know, conversation. And I think, you know, you're a sports writer, so you you know you can. I think this is. I don't know. If this will change everyone's opinion, but I think it does give a dimension to this man that I think has been lacking. And you know, maybe it's his fault. Maybe he should have been more open. But certainly, it feels like everyone who's seen the film so far says. This is not the Barry Bonds that I'm used to seeing. 
Yeah, the irony of it is, and I picked this up from Jeff Perlman's bio of Bonds called Love Me, Hate Me, which is a good book I recommend people check out, um, is Bond said that he learned from Willie right. that the superstar has to be distant, that the right. superstar cannot be perfectly accessible in those ways. And I think that Barry, in a lot of ways, went a wee bit too hard. The other thing that I think becomes interesting is Bobby Bonds is his daddy, not Willie Mays and Bobby Bonds and Willie Mays are different men. And I always imagine if the wonder if the relationship between Barry and Willie Mays also has to do from the fact that quite honestly, Willie Mays was a gentler man than his father was. And when you have that kind of father, having that kind of godfather is a helpful and important thing. He said at one point, uh, because we did a long interview with him, this was one fight that we had it in, but we couldn't finally squeeze it in. He said that Willie was the good angel and his father was the tough angel. Uh, and so Bobby constantly critiqued. Willie constantly lifted up. Right. And uh, he said, I needed the tough angel to get to, to, to try and get as good as a good angel. Um, yeah, he told some crazy stories, man. Like uh, his father would give him, they would break rocks. That he would get a sledgehammer and break rocks because uh, Bobby felt it would make your hand stronger and, you know, just toughen you up. I was like, wow. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, that's some, some you know, hardcore stuff. So, so definitely Willie was the, the comforter, um, the bolsterer, um, which is consistent with Willie's attitude to everyone that he really cared about. Um, yeah, man, it, it's, 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 you know, I, I say this, this is, this is maybe, I love Field of Dreams. And I was one of those guys crying in the, you know, in the theater because my father never played catch with me. So I, I was mm. bawling when that scene comes out. And in a strange way for me, I always felt like this film in some ways, it's the Willie, the plot is the Willie Mays story, but at some level it's also Black Field of Dreams because it's about these, these mentorship things Willie's father find, sees his boy when he's four years old, thinks he has potential, has him playing with men in this, you know, the steel mill till teams when he's 11, 12. He's passed on to Piper Davis, who's the, a legend of black baseball in, in Birmingham. He's in a room full of, he's 15, 16, in a room full of grown-ass men in Birmingham learning the game, and so on and so on, where Willie himself then becomes that mentor figure for so many others. So I that 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 relationship between Willie, Bobby, and Barry is fascinating. And I think it's also just from a, a black male perspective to see the love and the and the ways in which these guys manifest that love for each other, you know, where where Bobby's hardcore and and really exists, but to make this kid be the best he can be. I think that I think that was uh to me it's very powerful and and I, I it as we were doing the film, so a lot of the other threads, like the Mickey Mantle thread, they fell to the wayside for me because I felt like this was this was some real emotional, and and, and I think not seen enough stuff. Yeah, you know. Now there's another level that I think you explored that is very important that it may on its face seem simple, but I really think is a big deal, which is spelling out what a great athlete. Willie Mays was like forget about baseball player just strictly as an athlete like even if we're talking about just the shots of him 
with his shirt off because Dude. you know you hear people talk about the older players as being like plumbers in basketball and stuff like that and you look at Willie Mays and you see those shoulders and this dude got a six pack in 1951 oh, yeah he he he's a he's a phenomenal athlete one of the things that really was wild when you look at the the that especially the some of that black and white footage of him that man was fast as hell i i thought it was when he goes from first when he goes to steal a base when he goes from first to third his speed is insane. It looks like it's been sped up. One of the funniest things uh, is, you know, the discussion of Willie's hands. Uh, at the end of the film, there's a little bit of like B-roll stuff of me putting my, you know, shaking Willie's hands or trying to. That's part of a long, there was a long ongoing thing with Willie. Willie's hands are massive. He loves to get young guys to shake his hand because I don't care who they are, they're not hanging with Willie Mays. Um, so the, in the film, you see me shaking his hand. That's the second time I'm going in because he's already squeezed it. I've got to prove to him that I can hang. <laughs> and so I put my hand back in and I'm really, and he goes, oh, you're trying now. <laughs> the first time we met Willie, uh, September 25th, 2019, we go in to get the blessing. We go to giant, the Giants ballpark. My producer's the first one in the room. He shakes Willie's hand first. Willie goes, was that a handshake? <laughs> So he's very aware, even at 90 years old, of his physical power. His, his forearms at, at 90 are as big as ham hocks. <laughs> so I can, and when you see that footage of him in the, in the I think it's one thing that you're, you're hitting on something that a lot of people talk about. Uh, when you see him in 1950-something with his shirt off, that looks like a guy who works out right now. That's, that's not a plumber. Right. That's an elite athlete. Um, you know, and it's interesting, in high school, he played a few games on the football team with the quarterback, of course. Uh, was outstanding. He played a little bit of basketball. And, and I, I found some old um, clippings from the local black newspaper in Alabama where, you know, he had like 23 points or something uh, in this game. He could, you know, he could have been any, he could have been a quarterback, but there were no black people in the SEC. The only real option when he was in high school was the, the Trotters. So baseball was a calculated. One thing he says a, a few times is baseball was a sport I could play a long time. And, you know, again, talking about his physicality. In the 1960s, guys didn't play to their 40s. Guy, I think he retired in 43. His his just presence. He wasn't a big man, you know, in terms of height, but um, the respect he got and the level of of athletic greatness. I mean, anybody who's ever seen the basket catch, it seems simple. Anybody try and do the basket catch? If even if you throw the ball up with yourself and try and catch it, it's difficult. Trying to hit a batted ball that has speed on it at your waist. It's, it's nearly impossible for most people to do it for years, to create something that basically is un... Who, who, I don't know, who's the last guy who even attempted that? I've never seen anybody actually try it in a real game by, yeah. other than Willie Mays. And see, I thought it was very helpful to me that the film did a breakdown of the catch of the ball, Big Words hit in 1954. One, for the context that gets lost, which is 
1954 then Cleveland Indians were maybe the best team ever to not win a World Series. They're definitely up until that point. But I think the part that gets lost is that fence is 480 feet away. Like this isn't turning around and getting to the 400 side. Yeah. This is a whole nother ball game of what it was. And so the athleticism of that catch, I don't think is something that really translates from the old film if you don't have all the context. So you have me, to understand the, the, the polo grounds was a massive building. Yeah. Uh, and and the fact that that ball was even that far out was a that was he a hit it a mile. Like that, he'll never hit a ball that far again in his life, or he probably never did. Yeah. And uh, the fact that he did it over his shoulder, and that Willie to this day um, thinks that's not his best catch. I think one of the things that, ha- you know, that we couldn't, Vince, we had the late Vince Scully, we have, you know, one of his last interviews. Vince is convinced that the greatest catch Willie made was at the Ebbet Field. Um, just we couldn't, it's hard, we couldn't dramatize it, there's no footage. At uh, some point in the in that uh, early fifties, line drive up the gap. The the Ebbets Field was small, and they didn't have a dirt um, warning track. It was made out of kind of gravel. He says Willie went horizontal, caught the ball in midair, land slides across the gravel into the wall, and that Jackie Robinson. And uh, Leo DeRocha run out to look to see if he caught the ball. And to and Vince Scully, who's seen more baseball than maybe anybody, you know, the late Vince Scully, says that's the greatest catch he ever saw, better than the polo grounds. You know, uh, Barry Bonds, who was at that game with Bobby Tolan hit the ball up the gap uh, at Candlestick Park. I remember watching that game on Game of the Week as a kid, that Willie leaps up, crashes into he leaps over Bobby Bond. He kind of flies in, crashes into the wire fence, fall, gets kicked in the stomach by Bobby, comes back and still holds on to the ball. That's the greatest catch I've ever seen. Um so the, the the athleticism I think is very, very important because you're right, there's this whole narrative that these guys weren't really real athletes or not the same as today. And there's no doubt about it that Willie Mays would have been a star in several sports and definitely still be a dominant player today. All right. The last thing I'm going to ask you, because this was the most delightful thing I found out about the doc. How much did you light up like a teenager first time you heard Willie Mays just sitting there cussing like an old black man? Loved it. We're so happy. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That was, and that's, so I think as I said, you know, it began kind of, I had a, I was trying to, he's sealing me out. Soon as I realized I got to talk to this man like I'm talking to my uncle from Virginia. Once that happened, and I started testing him like, so let me say, oh, you're the greatest ball player of all time. I know he's going to hate that question. But then he he amps up, you know, and the more I did stuff like that, the more lucid guy. Um, There's also a funny bit. I don't know if you noticed it. He's toward the end in in the sort of after credit. He has a wad of money in his hand. Did you notice that? I did not. So look, and he has a lot of big wad of money. So Woody Mays had been on quarantine for a year. He hadn't been outside. The brother still had a wad of cash in his pocket. <laughs> he pulls out the wad of cash and says, uh, you guys hungry? <laughs> he said, uh, oh, whatever, Mr. Mays. Uh, I like Jack in the Box. <laughs> 
she pulls out a hundred dollar bill off the off the fat knot and gives it to his assistant. And she's like, I don't know if I can take a hundred dollar bill to Jack in the box. <laughs> and and uh, then he asked us, you know, how many guys you got? So I said, okay, we got ten. No one, I had five. And he goes, you ain't got, you ain't got five. You ain't got ten people. Uh, and eventually, he did order Jack in the box. See, the old man move normally is to give you a $10 bill thinking you could go to Jack in the Box like it's 1974 and feed the whole family off of this. No, w w Willie Bays knows inflation. Willie got a big knot. And, you know, that's, to me, that reminds me of a million barbershops that I've been in as a boy. Yeah. The guy, because brothers, didn't, that, they didn't really care about that wallet. They had a money, or they had a money clip. Something about having that money in your hand is very comforting. <laughs> that ladies and gentlemen is nelson george check out say hey willie mays when's the premiere on hbo november 8th november 8th please check it out i found it to be a fantastic documentary look forward to everybody checking it out my man i greatly appreciate oh, you man, thank, thank you, you nah, no problem and ladies and gentlemen thanks so much for joining us here on the right time thanks for watching us on youtube dan stancic and adi khan handling everything behind the scenes thank you gentlemen Remember, follow the right time. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy. Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Right Time with Bomani Jones.